Welcome to Radio Finance, the podcast that helps you understand the transformative developments taking place in the world today. Ladies and gentlemen, uh, a very important conversation with uh, former Congressman Barney Frank, who is now in uh, the U.S., um, outside Boston, where he lives. Um, and uh, he was the House Finance Chair between 2007 and 2011, um, very much uh, a part of the U.S. Um, financial services industry, as well as uh, the overall economies. Um, construction in in the in the in the in the crisis that took place uh, in the 2007-2008 period um, a very core member of the Obama administration uh, and now uh, I'm very very pleased to be able to uh, reconnect with uh, congressman Bunny uh, Frank and uh, and tap his uh, mind in in terms of what he sees um, the a new administration will be faced with. Uh, the conversation that we want to have today uh, will focus uh, on uh, Barney's perception um, of the different personalities that uh, the new Biden administration is putting together, uh, and also on some of the key issues uh, that uh, all of us outside of the United States uh, would be interested uh, to know. And uh, I've tapped on his uh, thoughts uh, on the developments taking place in the U.S., uh, even right through uh, the previous administration. Uh, and I'm very excited to have this conversation with Barney to get a sense uh, of how um, the first 100 days, the, the, you know, the, the, the get-go of the new administration is going to look like. And as all of us know, um, there, is, there are a number of very important agendas, uh, many of which are domestic to the U.S., but some of which uh, are very important uh, to the rest of the world as well. So uh, I want to focus uh, the conversation with Barney, uh, firstly, on the personalities that are being brought together uh, for this new administration, uh, and then from there, how they are about how they are likely to act out uh, in in terms of uh, legislation, in terms of the economy, uh, in terms of domestic um, you know policy and rebuilding the economy and so on, and also trade um, and uh, what's happening globally. We've had this conversation before. We have rehearsed it in many different ways uh, over the years. Uh, now with the new Biden administration coming together, I guess the the first question that uh, anyone talking to you would be interested in uh, would be, you know, you left the administration having put together um, the landmark legislation, uh, the Dodd Frank Act, uh, and uh, and now uh, an, an entire new team is coming together. Uh, to, you know, to take it to another level. Uh, and also they have a number of other agendas that they're taking to another level, uh, healthcare, infrastructure, uh, the economy, and so on. What is your first sense of the, um, uh, of the lineup that the Biden administration has put together, um, you know, in, in terms of the uh, nominees and uh, appointees, uh, uh, you know, for, for the new administration? Um, you know, so yeah, we have Kamala Harris, of course, but we also have uh, Pete, uh, Boutigay, and we have Janet Yellen as uh, Treasury Secretary. Let's start with Janet Yellen and her uh, relationship and role uh, change um, that is going to be taking place, um, you know, having been uh, a Federal Reserve Bank uh, chairman and then now uh, on the other side of the fence uh, as Treasury Secretary. Well, I think she's very much in, uh, in sync with Joe Biden. And in fact, they've, uh, she in many ways symbolizes or typifies the evolution they've taken. You know, to start, you're going to see in the Biden administration something very close to the Obama administration in general, except moved somewhat to the left. Uh, he doesn't face the political constraints that Obama faced because Mitch McConnell, who led that opposition to Obama, has been greatly weakened for a variety of reasons. And there is also, I think, in the country uh, after COVID, um, and the role that the government had to play there, broadly supported, there's going to be more support for government activism. Janet Yellen herself uh, typifies this. A few years ago, when she was a member of the Federal Reserve, when she was chair, she said, well, we have to be careful not to let uh, unemployment drop too low, to be honest. She said, we might have to check employment. And there was a point when uh, she was pushing up interest rates for fear that diminished unemployment would generate inflation. 
along with most other economists, and particularly on the left, she no longer worries about that to that extent. There's a recognition that unemployment now can go much lower than was previously thought under the Phillips curve, as it was called, um, and, and not worry about inflation. So uh, she will be very much in line with Obama's, for instance, that uh, nearly two trillion plan he proposed yesterday. Uh, she'll be very supportive of that. The Fed will be uh, working very closely with the Treasury Department. And Janet Yellen personally symbolizes that. Uh, I think she's the first Treasury Secretary to have been a Fed chair. She will also be very supportive, as she was when she was uh, Fed chair, of the regulations in the uh, what's called the Dodd-Frank bill. And by the way, in that context, significant is that Chris Dodd, the co-author, obviously, of Dodd-Frank, is very close to Joe Biden. He was the chair of the committee to pick or to recommend vice presidents. So we start out with that strong favorability. And, and Janet Yellen, uh, the Trump administration did not weaken Dodd-Frank very much. They talked about doing so, but they recognized it was politically unpopular to weaken it. But to the extent that they made some minor ticks in that, uh, Janet Yellen will restore them. How would you describe Janet Yellen's uh, relationship with um, pa Powell, J Jeremy Powell? Because, uh, um, you know, she's now uh, on the side of the fence who do want to expand uh, spending. And, um, and some things have worked in, the, in favor of the administration coming in. Um, you know, uh, treasury, um, treasury rates have gone up slightly. Um, you know, uh, it, um, hopefully it will hold up insure, uh, uh, inflation quite well and so on. But how would you describe that, the relationship they're likely to have? It'll be a very close relationship, even though they you know, from different parties. Um, the fact is that uh, when when Janet Yellen was a member of the board after her chairmanship, uh, she and Powell got along well. Well, in fact, the, the thing is, uh, Chairman Powell has sounded more like a Democrat these days uh, in that uh, uh, he has been for some time now saying, look, to the Congress, we're doing as much as we can to be stimulative and accommodative with the uh, with monetary policy, with, with the various forms of injection of, of funds into the economy. But we can't do it alone. We can't do it without you. And he has been a strong advocate of fiscal stimulus. He also, remember, broke with the Trump administration when uh, Treasury Secretary Mnuchin decided to curtail some of the programs as of the end of last year that had been instituted by Congress to stimulate the economy. And Powell differed with that. He had to give in because of the way the law was. So Powell, uh, although he was appointed by, by Trump and as a Republican, I think is also very much in line with the uh, administration's thinking. And I think he and, he and Yellen will have a very good personal relationship as well. You know, the equity market is, you know, it's a runaway at the moment. There seemed to be a kind of a need to bring Main Street with Wall Street uh, together again, uh, you know, right now. Uh, how do you think that's going to play, play out? Uh, what do you think the issues are, um, you know, and, and who are the personalities that are going to, uh, you know, shape that? That's a critical question. I, Biden understands it. That's why he stressed yesterday that uh, his first package legislatively is to get more money into the pockets of, of average citizens, raising that uh, uh, stipend from $600 to $2,000. You will see, I think, uh, on Biden's part, a serious effort to uh, to, to make sure that, that average Americans uh, are, are benefited, first of all, in the direct subsidy. I think you'll see soon later on infrastructure, which you mentioned, which puts a lot of people to work, uh, including non-college educated people. And uh, I think you will see an extension of Medicare, not Medicare for all, that was really never realistically on the table, um, but you will see an expansion of Medicare, maybe uh, lowering the age to, uh, to 16, maybe even into the high 50s. So Biden will be doing a lot to try to uh, do that. I should say the one area I was talking about how the Biden administration will be, the Obama administration moved to uh, a couple of degrees to the left because economic thinking has changed about the trade-off between unemployment and inflation, seeing much much less of a trade-off. And secondly, um, there's more of an understanding and a willingness to support government. The one, the major 
disjunction between Obama and Biden will be on trade. Uh, you will not see an immediate renewal of TPP as it then was. Uh, I think you, you've seen a great evolution. Uh, Biden will be unwilling to go forward with more trade until and unless he's gotten some of those uh, protections for uh, non-college educated people who, who tend to be hurt by some of the trade and he would want to insulate them from that harm before he expanded it. How left do you think um, the Biden administration will be willing to go? And maybe uh, where, where does um, Bernie Sanders stand in this whole thing? Will we go all the way left and, and, uh, and, and embrace that wholly? Uh, or will there be some, somewhat of a, a control in, in that whole process? It was never going to go as far left as the Republicans claimed. There was never going to be the Green New Deal or Medicare for all. In the first place, people forget. And I have to say to some of my friends on the left who, who, who argue how much we should listen to the people. Yeah, well, among the people you, you seem to not want to listen to are the majority of voters in the Democratic primary who picked Joe Biden over the candidate you preferred. Biden comes in with a very solid popular majority among Democrats to expand Medicare, but not wipe out private insurance, for example. And uh, uh, that's been reinforced by the election, which was somewhat close. And, and to his credit, because I've often differed with his approach to things, Senator Sanders realizes this because he's going to be chairman of the budget committee. Frankly, I think the fact that that was on the line was one of his incentives to be much more supportive of Biden in November than he had been of Hillary Clinton four years earlier. And uh, he has himself said as chair of the budget committee, he's kind of dividing his, his approach. He will work with Biden to implement the expansions of Medicare and infrastructure and, and, and those sort of mainstream liberal positions. He will continue to advocate going much further, but he won't try to hold the rest of the program hostage to get that. He'll be running a two track thing, which is doable. He will be help implement the Biden agenda, which is Obama a couple degrees to the left, and he will then on a separate track advocate going uh, much further. One of the sayings that has gotten things wrong, it seems to me, was Lord Acton, that power corrupts and absolute power corrupts Corrupt. absolutely. absolutely. I think in our system and, and in other democratically run systems, it's the opposite. What corrupts is not having any power. Not having responsibility encourages politicians to act irresponsibly. When people are given power and there are consequences to their actions, they get more responsible. So Bernie Sanders, chair of the budget committee in the Senate that's very closely divided, will be a much more politically realistic operative than Bernie Sanders as the lone voice in the wilderness. Okay, so give give the guy the the driving the driving seat and give him the steering wheel and you'll behave very differently, right? Um, it worked with except Donald Trump. You went on record um, last year saying that you know you wouldn't like to see Elizabeth Warren um, in the driving seat, um, you know, and and now she isn't. So will that sort of uh, play a role in in how she perceives what needs to be done? The position that that Sanders is at now. Frankly, Elizabeth Warren has always understood. Um, in fact, she's had some influence. Yes, she advocates some positions to the left. Although, remember, um, she understood the impracticality, both politically and operationally, of Medicare for all. And during the campaign, one of the problems she had was she tried to bridge that by saying, well, yes, the goal is Medicare for all, but here's how we will approach it. And she tried to sort of take an incremental approach to the radical change, and that cost her on both sides. But she's always been very realistic and respected by her colleagues. Uh, she's been, Sanders over the time has not been a major uh, player in the actual operation of the Senate, although that'll change when he's chair of the committee. Elizabeth Warren, from the day she got there, was much more operational. She, she was the model of how you could have these further extensive goals but work within what is politically possible. And frankly, I think she will emerge as one of the leaders in the Senate in uh, uh, helping Biden and at the same time kind of nudging him to the left. 
let's take tax um, tax reform and and this is something that the market has been quite afraid of which is um, Biden has uh, promised uh, tax increases right market is afraid of paying taxes right so how far do you think that will go I mean if you're saying to me that uh, they're not going you know, to go all the way left you know starting with Bill Clinton there's been a democratic republican alteration on the top individual rate between the mid 30s and the high 30s moving a few points but a few points at that level can mean a lot of money yes i think biden will push and will succeed in getting the tax top tax rate back up close to 40% individually he will also i believe increase the uh, the corporate tax rate and and probably the capital gains rate but not to where they had been I think you may see both of those go up into the mid-20s. I do think, because it's taken on a great symbolic value, that the Democrats, I hope, and I think they will finally change the tax law to make it explicit that carried interest is to be taxed as capital gains and not as operational uh, profit from the hedge funds. Um, so I think you will see uh, uh, increases uh, of 5% out of 100% in, in the top rate, uh, the top in, in the uh, top individual rate, and in the corporate and uh, uh, capital gains tax rates. Are there any uh, items on the in the Trump um, you know bill um, expense bill which uh, can be you know cut down? I I saw that uh, you know Trump um, you know signed off on on a $700 billion space force, um, you know, budget. Um, you know, that's, that sounds to me like a, like a huge deal. I don't see a decrease in the rate of increase in the military. I hope it will even stabilize and go down. One of the paradoxes of Trump was he talked, I thought correctly, that we were not getting enough support from our allies in military spending and that we were sort of giving Europe a free ride and to some extent, in Japan, and he wanted them to pay more. And I'm for that. I've been for that for a long time. The problem is that the correlation of that is that you then can cut American spending. And uh, he has done both. He's complained that we're spending too much vis-a-vis the others, but then he increases our spending. One that removes their incentive to spend more. By the way, every year, the last couple, Trump has increased like 30 or $40 billion federal spending to compensate American farmers for the damage he had done to them by his trade policies with with China in particular. Trump's trade policies hurt American farmers. Now, maybe those were good policies or not, but nobody could deny they hurt American farmers. And this great free enterprise of the way he dealt with that was to increase the most wasteful anti-market program in, in the federal budget, which is farm subsidies. So yes, you can cut back on that, actually, I, I, I would hope he would undo this Trump creation of the U.S. Space Force. We now have the Army, the Navy, the Air Force, and the Space Force. Uh, that's not more expensive in hardware, but it certainly is administratively. Uh, the other area is this. The Republicans have greatly relaxed the constraint of the budget deficit. When Obama was there, he had to worry about the deficit uh, politically, I think economically, it has long been exaggerated as, as, a, as a problem. That is, I think our country has a capacity to carry you know, more debt. One side thing on the debt, we do the federal debt differently than anybody else in the world does debt. Anybody else in the world, private sector, public sector, if you do a long-term physical improvement, that doesn't count the same as an immediate short-term expenditure. The, the federal government builds roads, and that counts the same as as a direct expenditure for salary. We don't take into account the long-term benefits of that. But in any case, the the budget deficit has just exploded under Trump. It has clearly meant nothing to the Republicans. Um, To quote the Cheney, who's not in the news these days, Dick Cheney, the vice president, he said deficits don't matter. And I think he was right politically and, and much closer to right economically than, than his critics. At any rate, Biden, if the Republicans start to object to some of Biden's programs on the grounds they're going to add to the deficit, they will be totally non-credible given their own record. Now this is this is uncharted territory. I mean, we are now entering a realm where the, 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 the deficit and the total debt is... Uh, 
larger than the GDP. So, um, you know, so we stopped counting at this point, right? You may also argue that there were different kinds of debt. People said, well, what are you doing to future generations if you build up the debt? Well, if the result is that future generations have a much better transportation system, uh, much less damage to the climate, that's a good thing. Yeah, it's yeah. true when you buy a house, you get into debt, but you got a house. I noticed that the Labor Secretary, Marty Walsh, and uh, the Agriculture Secretary, these are guys with, um, you know, grassroots background, right? Um, you know, ex-labor, um, you know, um, uh, ex-union, uh, people who, who worked on the ground and, and, and holding it that way. And, and also, uh, something that's not said very, uh, not, you know, pointed out very clearly is that uh, the Biden administration is planning for $1 trillion worth of infrastructure spending, right? And that's going to be going into uh, local government. And by the way, that, that spending in the federal government, because I said it's the same as, as operational day-to-day, but in any other entity, it would be capital improvements than you do for daily operations. But yeah. one other, you know, we were talking about the administration and, and who they are. And before we run out of time, I do want to say one very important signal has been given that this is going to be a very uh, fair but tough administration of the Dodd-Frank bill. They were the two toughest regulators, but also fair, I believe, and accurate uh, under Obama. One was Sheila Bear at the... Uh, at the FDIC. The other was Gary Gensler, who was chair of the Commodity Futures Trading Commission. He right. is the first regulatory appointment that, Trump, that that Biden has announced. He's going to be head of the SEC, which is the, the most important of the corporate regulators. And that is a uh, that in itself and as a signal means you are going to see a full-fledged, accurate and reasonable, but but very tough administration of financial regulation. Do you have concerns about municipal debt, uh, debt at the local government level? Because uh, that's that's raking up as well. What my concern is, my concern is that I wish I had some cash to buy it. Historically, the rate of default on what we call full faith and credit municipal debt, that is debt that is backed by the taxing power of the issuing entity, is the safest debt it is only slightly less safe than U.S. Treasuries. The default rate on municipal debt is very small. What often happens is if an entity, a city is in trouble, the state will step in to cover their debts because otherwise it would affect negatively every other city in that state in terms of the interest they had yeah. to pay. The biggest difference between the Republicans and the Democrats on the question of a COVID relief package was whether or not you aided state and local governments. Trump and McConnell were against that. The Democrats give that a very high priority. Ironically, uh, for Republicans who objected that Democrats didn't want to fund the police, the biggest attack on police funding was the Republicans' refusal to give money to the entities that pay for the police. You know, the cops aren't volunteers. They, they, they get paid pretty well, as they should be. Um, but what you have in the package that Biden announced yesterday is hundreds of billions of dollars of aid to state and local government. So whatever people thought about the fear of default, I, I think it was exaggerated before. But with the Democrats in power and the Biden administration, uh, the fact is that the help is on the way for the state and local governments. And, and municipal debt is uh, clearly a lot more secure going forward than it was a week ago. Something about Dodd-Frank is that there was a lot of uh, focus in the past on, uh, on the institutions, on, you know, uh, capital, um, capital charge and all of that, uh, but um, not very much focus on the community level uh, support that was being created under Dodd-Frank, right? Uh, you, you have the uh, Community Reinvestment Act, uh, you have the um, I, I, one my favorite really was the consumer protection aspect of, um, of the Dodd-Frank Act. Um, uh, what do you think would be the priorities now, uh, you know, to either strengthen, ameliorate, um, you know, or vary, um, you know, what, what Dodd-Frank had already achieved? That's the uh, biggest area where Trump managed to weaken what we did in the financial reform bill. He put people in charge of the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau that didn't believe in it. Uh, Mick Mulvaney, who was the acting director, well, tried to kill it when he was in the House. And it will be restored to, to great strength. It's very popular. Uh, 
it's, it's interesting that while the Republicans kept moving to try to repeal President Obama's health care plan, they never, for all their complaints about the Consumer Bureau, they never ever tried to repeal it or change it because the Republicans didn't want to have to vote to weaken it. And that will be fully strengthened. That will be uh, the appointee of that, Frankie, will I think be chosen. That'll be an area of great influence by Senator Warren. And that the Consumer Bureau will be restored to full strength. Similarly, on the Community Reinvestment Act, but actually predates our bill by about 40 years, <clears throat> which says that banks cannot only do activity in the nicer neighborhoods and ignore the, the poorer neighborhoods and their services. <clears throat> there was an effort by the Trump administration to weaken that. What about Fannie Mae and uh, Freddie Mac? Um, you know, um, what's going to happen to these two organizations? Uh, the, the, you know, the commercialization of uh, mortgage debt, mortgage risk. Well, two things. Uh, one, in terms of uh, irresponsible mortgage debt, et cetera, we really did take care of that in the legislation we passed. We banned, I mean, Fannie and Freddie aren't able to finance inappropriately granted mortgages because we basically outlawed those kind of mortgages. And we did tighten up some at Fannie and Freddie. But the big thing is this, for the last 10 years, there's been a consensus that Fannie and Freddie should be replaced by a federally chartered set of entities so you could have competition that would sell a guarantee to mortgage issuers against interest rate fluctuations, but not credit. The, the lender would still take the full responsibility for any bad credit decisions, but the institutions would be protected against great fluctuations in the interest rate, because otherwise you couldn't have 30-year fixed rate mortgages. Nobody is gonna lend, the government wouldn't allow a bank to lend a fixed rate for 30 years, unless it was such a high rate, nobody wanted to take it out. Uh, so what I think you will see now is support for uh, uh, the chartering of entities that have the mandate to sell appropriately priced interest rate risk insurance to mortgage issuers so they can do the uh, uh, 30-year mortgages. Bunny, you know, when you, uh, uh, you know, uh, the uh, Congress chair for, for financial services, um, I had this impression that there was this so-called kitchen cabinet, as it were, of, um, you know, people like yourself, uh, um, you know, Lauren Summer, um, you know, maybe Timothy Geithner, um, sort of, you know, coalescing to uh, form policy and, and, you know, and, and, and create direction. Um, who do you think would be the most, uh, you know, important, uh, you know, influential people coming together and not just in the Fed, um, but also in the OCC, the FDIC, um, you know, the personalities that are going to hold the, the whole relationship together? Well, because uh, Secretary Yellen, because she'd been on the Fed, had, was deeply steeped in the regulation. Gary Gensler, who I mentioned before, who was, he, he is a very assertive regulator and, and will have a major impact as the head of the SEC on all the other regulators. They sit together in this agency we created uh, called the Financial uh, Stability Oversight Council. Um, on the Federal Reserve, Leo Brainerd, who'd been an undersecretary of Treasury, had a major role in trade. Um, she, will, she was the defender on the Fed. She's a governor. Uh, of, of good regulation, she helped block the Republican effort to undo Community Reinvestment Act. She'll have a, a, a major role, I believe. Senator Warren, uh, who was a very thoughtful regulator, she goes further in some ways than uh, I would have gone or did go, but uh, she will certainly be a, a, an important voice in, uh, in that operation. Something that uh, foreign banks are you know, concerned about um, I, you know, where they're concerned about where some of the, um, you know, prescriptive um, regulation and sometimes um, the fines that they face when, when, they, when they do U.S. dollar clearing in the U.S. Um, I was under the impression it was the New York Fed that, that um, um, you know, that oversaw that or had jurisdiction over it because, um, you know, the foreign banks are generally, um, you know, located in New York. Um, but there's also the New York 
state banking authority, right? And uh, uh, how do you describe the relationship between the two? Um, and what is it that foreign uh, institutions doing clearing in the U.S. Uh, need to be concerned about? The New York State Fed and the Fed were close together. You know, one of the things that puzzles non-Americans sometimes causes us difficulty is what we call the dual banking system of being federally chartered or state chartered. And there's a, an overlap. If you have a charter from the state, you're not regulated by any federal regulator except the FDIC because you need deposit insurance. And um, generally, the two work very well together. I, I'm on the board of a bank in, in, in New York, Signature Bank. It's state chartered, uh, but we're also covered by the FDIC, as all banks are. And it's been my experience that the two regulators work very closely together. When we have meetings with regulators or discussions with regulators, it's generally with both of them, and they have worked close. There was a, a case in or two in New York where there was friction. Uh, and, you know, New York had a very vigorous regulatory system when Elliot Spitzer was attorney general, people remember. And I do remember at least one case where the feds thought the state of New York had been too vigorous. And, and, and some of that regulation of the foreign banks is from, uh, is from the state regulators in New York. Uh, I think you will see fairly good coordination of that uh, going forward. The area right. that you will see very vigorous international regulation is of the uh, overseas derivative activity of American banks. Gary Gensler fought very hard. There was an effort led by uh, uh, J.P. Morgan Chase to say that if an American bank was doing things overseas in the derivative area, that they would be governed by the host country's laws. And Gensler fought successfully, quoting, I think, accurately our bill, they said, no, we have the right to say that that can only happen if we think those laws are accurate. And the American regulators will decide whether the host country's laws are, are adequate. And if not, those banks will be regulated by America. And that came up in the middle of that debate. J.P. Morgan Chase suffered that $8 billion loss from the so-called London whale. And that yeah. said, on have American supervision. Actually, you know, on the financial oversight um, agenda, there are a number of things um, building. Uh, there is um, derivatives of uh, American banks. That's one. The second is actually the the um, the cash position of American corporations, right? Uh, the largest ones are, are getting larger. They are, you know, we we had the problem of GE in the in the 1990s and then into the 2000s uh, and AIG. But today, um, you know, at the top five, top ten American corporations, um, you know, incredibly um, cash positive and and uh, and you know they they they're not just um, domiciled in the US, but globally and, and so on. So there's this whole thing about um, too big to fail, um, you know, uh, and, and the knock-on effect of, uh, of uh, systemic risk. Uh, how do you think that's going to evolve? What are some of the issues there? I'm very proud of what we've seen from Dodd-Frank in, in, in two or three areas. We, we have reduced their ability to do risky things, and we have increased the amount of money they have to keep on hand in case risk goes bad. The one thing that hasn't been tested is what happens when a very big institution of systemic impact goes, uh, can't, can't keep going. We have a rule in there that says in that case, uh, they're not too big to fail, they fail. What happens though is when they fail, the federal government will step in, take over, and to the extent that there is not enough in the entity to cover its debts, the federal government will cover enough of those debts to prevent a downward spiral, and recover that money from other large financial institutions by, by a formula. I think that'll work. We fortunately haven't had to test it yet. I do think that that's one area when we talk about the cash position uh, of corporations. I hadn't thought about that, but as you mentioned that, Emmanuel, that could be an area where Gary Gensler, as the head of the Securities and Exchange Commission, could have a role. Because obviously, uh, one of the things, the SEC is the guardian of the investor. It's, it's supposedly the uh, make sure that you don't get sold stock by a corporation that shouldn't be doing it. So that a, an excessively heavy debt position endangering you, that could be an area that became a problem, I think, given 
Gary Gensler's personality and, 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 and ability, that would be an area the SEC might step into. So we're going we're gonna to keep a watchful eye on Gary Gensler. Um, you know, Bunny, uh, when, when Dot Frank came about, uh, Bitcoin was nothing, right? And today it's like, uh, what is it now, 40,000 US? It's creating all kinds of uh, potentially systemic uh, issues. It's a new asset class. It's, um, it's huge. Uh, it's unregulated and so on. Um, what do you think needs to happen to legislation to sort of uh, start and wrap? The SEC has already, you know, stepped in and uh, uh, basically objected to people selling it as an investment vehicle as opposed to uh, a currency vehicle. Obviously, the, uh, the Federal Reserve and other central banks don't want to see it become an alternative currency to the extent that it undercuts uh, their, their control of monetary policy. And I, I, I think you'll, you'll continue to see the investor protection, although it does seem now that the investors don't need that much protection, except apparently against forgetting their passwords. But uh, that's not for the SEC. That's for the what the memory drugs. Um, I don't know what's going to happen. Um, I do think you can see central banks trying to restrain the extent to which it, it becomes an alternative uh, uh, currency. Uh, and then I guess you just have to, uh, uh, the question will be, how does it have, how is it used in, in regular transactions? And uh, inevitably that's going to increase, but I'll be honest, we had enough to worry about back then. And uh, I, I have not looked at that the way I had to look at these other things. I'll go back to my uh, statement that uh, uh, the lack of responsibility uh, is what is what weakens you, and I've had no responsibility for Bitcoin, so I don't know anything about it. Yeah, well, in in some sense, it's not just Bitcoin; it's the whole technology uh, dimension of finance, right? Um, now, the OCC, um, you know, would take care of it if it is banking related, but now increasingly, there's this thing called financial technology and uh, non-banks, oh. which are significant. A great deal to be gained in terms of efficiency by modernizing and digitalizing the payment system. You know, there's no reason in, inherently why I should be able to, I should deposit a check tomorrow and have to wait three days to have that money. Uh, that's an impediment in the efficiency of the system. So obviously uh, being able to get rid of that would be very helpful. Do you think that, um, you know, Lawrence Summers and, um, and Timothy Geithner would have a role um, in, in the new administration? Like, well, what, 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 how would they be as actors? Yeah. Tim Geithner's main job is running a company, which is pretty time consuming. Larry Summers is uh, part of the evolution I've talked about. The Larry Summers uh, is, I think, more in line with the evolution I talked about with Janet Yellen. With, with Joe Biden, uh, to his credit, Larry Summers has said, you know what, we have new evidence and, and uh, uh, he's part of this new consensus, I think, that says we don't have to worry as much about uh, uh, too much employment because, no, that's not going to cause inflation. I think he'll continue to be an important policy voice in, uh, in encouraging this, this more flexible approach, uh, but, but also I think his saying, in fact, he gives a lot of people assurance that this is not just some left-wing uh, uh, flight of fancy that says we don't have to worry as much about the constraints, but, but a serious economic analysis based on experience. You know, one of the nice things I liked about the lineup for the Democratic Party um, presidential, you know, selection process was the range was the range of issues that were raised and uh, the range of options. And I would have liked to see, um, you know, a little bit of everything, um, you know, in the in the administration. I would have liked to see Andrew Young uh, in, uh, you know, given a, a, a executive position, but but he's not uh, part of the lineup, and neither is Elizabeth Warren. Um, you know, and uh, but Pete Butchinger is in uh, in there definitely. Uh, how representative do you think the, the administration will be of all the ideas that were you know put up uh, during the nomination process? Andrew Yang, he's decided to run uh, for mayor of New York. Although oddly, he has had to acknowledge that 
in the 20 years he's lived in New York, he's never voted on the office that he's running for. Not like right. a great platform. But um, he was not really a broad gauge economic advisor. His, he did have that basic minimum income. Um, and I think there's generally a uh, consensus now that, that income support should be more targeted. Um, and uh, Senator Warren will continue to be very influential. I think she will be, without question, she'll be a policy leader in the United States Senate. She's very bright. She's uh, very knowledgeable about how to do politics. So she'll continue to have a major uh, impact. She'll continue to be the godmother of the Consumer Bureau, but also um, have, have genuine input in other areas. Other than that, I think what you have is a pretty good range of, of economists who believe that government has an important positive role, both in trying to help individuals uh, in the micro sense of, of, of dealing with uh, unfairness, and, and in the macro sense of the government as a uh, uh, promoter of, 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 of growth and equity. Um, my own hope is, and I'm going to be arguing this, that what we need to do in America and elsewhere is uh, recognize that growth alone is not the solution to the problem of anti-democratic feeling. And I am hoping that globally, in the developed world especially, we get more attention to equity. I think the anger at the uh, concentration of capital that's become the hallmark of our, our economy, that that's a driving problem. I do believe that Biden will be attacking that. Uh, I'm going to be spending my time saying I hope that they, they make that a very high priority. And I do think you have a Democratic economist lineup that, that understands that. And there was a question coming in, which is that, um, you know, how, how do you think uh, administration is going to heal uh, the incredible rift in, in, in social, um, you know, antagonism uh, in the U.S.? Um, you know, who are the personalities that you think um, are, are the best to uh, make that happen, um, you know, on both sides of the aisle, um, you know, whether but they're Republican or, or Democrat? We are now facing the second time in 90 years in the developed world, the capitalist democratic world, where popular anger at the outcome of the economic system is, is causing a rise in xenophobic populist sentiment. The first time was during the depression and the response to that was Keynes. And so from the end of World War II until the eighties, following the Keynesian model produced growth enough to to, to reestablish support for democracy. The problem is that starting in the 80s, the nature of growth evolved. It was no longer fairly widely shared. It became increasingly beneficial to a few. And ultimately that has caused the anger. I, I believe that's why we're now in the second wave of populist challenges to democracy. And the answer is to not disregard growth, but to give distribution, the same weight as growth, to recognize that, that, that growth that is monopolized doesn't help. You know, the old argument was, well, the rising tide will lift all boats. But the new reality is that a lot of people can't afford a boat. And if you're standing on tiptoe in the water, the rising tide is not a good idea. This is the question of the Biden administration. And I think people like Yellen, they've moved more in that direction. But I think that's going to be the challenge to, to liberals is can you manage a system in which growth continues, but is fairly enough distributed so it begins to diminish the anger that, that we've seen. You're talking from a capital perspective. There's also the technology perspective, which is technology is commoditizing um, a lot of the indus industries that, you know, that gave that growth in the past. Uh, and so there's destruction taking place even as a new reality is coming about. Um, you know, and so someone needs to um, you know, ameliorate that and, and hold it together because uh, there's, a, there's a transformation underway. I absolutely agree with you. And I think the two problems tend to merge because what we had by the 40s, 50s, 60s, the productivity, the process of making wealth was widely shared because there was a role in it for uh, uh, people without high sophistication, college degrees, they could go to work in the factories. The problem we have to is yes, there's the technology element, 
But that creates a divide between people with those skills and people without. And one of the challenge now is to see if we can better distribute the wealth that is created. One of the things that I believe will be important, uh, labor unions under Franklin Roosevelt came into play and the existence of labor unions, particularly in mass production, steel, autos, et cetera, they played a major role in creating a middle class and in transmitting the wealth so that we got social stability. I believe that one of the things we will see, I hope, in the Biden administration is support for the right of workers in the service industry, in the, in the gig industries, to unionize. Because I think people say, well, let's bring back manufacturing. Uh, it's easier to say that than to do it. We have a substantial workforce in Uber and uh, uh, et cetera. Now they're talking about a union at Google. Union, giving them the right to unionize and do for those workers what the industrial unions did for manufacturing workers is the key, in my judgment, to social stability. Which actually brings me right into uh, a very hot topic that everyone is interested to know, how trade is going to evolve, right? Um, and the personalities around, who are going to, uh, the personalities who are going to like shape it. Uh, the big thing about trade, um, you know, it's, uh, it's discussed as a winner takes it all, um, you know, um, kind of a model that is America wins, or China loses, China wins, America loses, that, that sort of thing. But let's, let's construct that part of the conversation this way. Uh, there was a time, uh, well, during the Obama administration, uh, America was a, the U.S. was a firm believer in, in uh, multilateralism, right? Uh, and then, and then the, the Trump administration came in, threw that all out of the door. But we're not going back to multilateralism today, are we? Uh, because, you know, uh, the U.S. Is, has got a very belligerent stance. Um, you know, so, uh, you know, what do you, what do you think... Um, the U.S. stance will be on recreating trade, um, you know, and um, and who are the personalities who are going to be shaping that? The two things have happened recently, you know, the 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 ex the former APEC countries or rather the APEC countries as we know them to be, they've formed something called uh, RCEP, which is very dominant, very um, dominated by China, Japan, Korea. Uh, and then, and then China has done a deal with EU, the EU, uh, you know, it, uh, a trade deal, which took them a long time getting there, but seems to uh, have been put on paper. So the U.S. is re-entering trade negotiations um, in a world where several big things have happened so far. First of all, um, I agree. There's been the breakdown of the multilateral area. Um, we should remember the biggest cause of that, frankly in my judgment, I think it's been big. China's refusal to abide by the agreement which got them into the World Trade Organization. The Clinton administration supported that, I voted no. The assumption was that the, the premise was, this will help China democratize, but even more, China will get into the WTO and adopt WTO rules, and it didn't. And uh, there's a consensus among economists in the U.S., even folk trade economists, that that was the single biggest cause of unemployment among the, the non-college educated Americans uh, of, of any policy decision. And you're right that under Obama, the Obama administration started out multilateral. By the end, the Democratic Party had largely abandoned that so that uh, uh, the signal event there was Hillary Clinton's opposing the Trans-Pacific Partnership when she ran for election. And it's the one area where you, it is the biggest disjunction you're going to see between Biden policy and Clinton-Obama policy. And it's going to be what was done in the U.S.-Mexico-Canada agreement. Um, there will be two things that Biden will be pursuing. One is to do the kind of compensations for those hurt by trade that we haven't been doing. That's expanding Medicare, that's expanding access to housing, uh, that's supporting unionization. Secondly, there will be an insistence in trade that you get fair competition in terms of worker rights, et cetera. And the significance there is one of the things that happened, the new chairman of the House Ways and Means Committee is a very able, under-noticed, 
member of Congress. His name is Richard Neal. He's from Springfield, Massachusetts. And he's a very thoughtful, not a loud, flashy guy uh, who is very much focused on trade that is socially responsible as an American interest. And his chief trade negotiator, trade policy person, is the new U.S. trade representative, Catherine Tsai. So I think you're going to see effort by uh, the Obama, the Biden administration with strong support from, from Chairman Neal. Because the House, it's the one area where the Constitution gives the House of Representatives priority. Any tax bill, which includes tariffs, has to start in the House. So I think you're going to see a concerted effort to have that two-pronged approach where the terms of trade themselves are fair and where the, uh, the, the there are policies that protect those who would be hurt by trade. And if they can succeed in that, that's the basis for a renewed goal by America in trade. Well, Richard and Catherine, were they involved in NAFTA, the uh, NAFTA negotiations? They were critical. It was clear that to get the uh, replacement for NAFTA, you needed both houses of Congress to vote in favor of it, unlike the usual treaty where it's just the Senate. And it was clear the House was going to be the major uh, player there. And so uh, Congressman Neal, as a chair, Democratic chair of the Ways and Means Committee, played a very major constructive role. Even the Trump trade representative, Lighthizer, acknowledged that. They helped negotiate between the House and the president, but also the House was in on the negotiations between America and Mexico and said, hey, look, to Mexico, you want this new deal, here's what you got to do. And so I, I think you're going to continue to see a very active role by the House Democrats, presided over by, by uh, Chairman Richie Neal, and, and with the U.S. Trade Representative, his former assistant, having that, that role. Mm. And what are the features of the NAFTA that was eventually, you know, um, signed by the Trump administration? What are the features of that uh, that you think uh, will get carried over into, you know, any new trade agreements that the U.S. gets into? Bizarre that America had an administration that was saying, oh, well, we want you to respect labor rights when it was doing everything it could to undo labor rights in America. You're now going to have a Biden administration that's going to be strongly for protecting the rights of working people to join unions and bargain in both cases. Uh, secondly, I think you will see now, and this is another area, probably the area where will be the greatest uh, renewed emphasis by Biden and where he can have the most impact is in climate change. And I think an insistence on uh, policies that, that, that promote good reaction to climate change, that, that retard uh, negative emissions, that'll be part of the uh, the trade as well. And finally, uh, some human rights concerns are going to be uh, a part of trade. Uh, you're not going to see trade easily done with uh, countries that have been very abusive to their own people. You're not going to, and, and then I think you're going to see a requirement that there be an encouragement of uh, alternative energy and against fossil fuel, and then also uh, worker rights. Right. You know, Bunny, I'm in, I'm in Beijing at the moment, right? So, and, and the, the, the sentiment here is that, um, that there is some hope that um, the nature of the dialogue between the U.S. and China will be uh, much more expanded because there is a shared um, commitment to, um, you know, to, to climate change uh, and to the environment. Uh, that when you put that into the equation, uh, both countries have more to talk with each other than, than, than to disagree with each other. What, what's your sense of, um, you know, the, the number of elements that uh, go into the conversation and how many of them are complementary and how many of them are not very complementary? Is the, is the fact that these two countries have a lot to discuss on climate change, is that going to create more dialogue as a result and therefore the ability to resolve issues? It creates a possibility of dialogue, but... Uh... That's too optimistic from the Chinese standpoint. They should not be underestimating the degree of American unhappiness with China. Again, it goes back to the fact that, without question, China violated the understandings that facilitated their entry into the WTO. I think some of us are going to say that we didn't vote to get rid of Donald Trump just to play up to his uh, Chinese twin. 
uh, and she, uh, Hong Kong, it's going to be a big problem. And I'll tell you one, one very big red line, and I hope China understands, any military action against Taiwan will unify a strong American response. I will tell you, I've been a liberal. I was against the Iraq war. But when you have a democracy like Taiwan, if it's menaced by this increasingly autocratic China, no, I want America to go to Taiwan's aid. And so um, it depends, I think, more frankly on the Chinese. Yes, I think Biden will be willing to go forward uh, on climate change, for example, but not he's not going to be able to or maybe even want to if uh, the Chinese position on Hong Kong, on militarizing the China Sea, on bullying its neighbors, and on uh, the the ability the, uh, serious abuse of the Uyghurs, those will be obstacles. In America, I, I do believe that even economically, China needs us more than we need them. America continues to be enormously strong economically. My own view is that we came through 2020 very strong. America, you know, we talk about the stress test for banks. We just had a serious stress test on our democracy and our economy. And we came through both with flying colors. And so nobody should think that America is going to be intimidated or, or worried about being surpassed by China. They can under, there's basis for cooperation, but they have a heavy burden to, to carry it out. Are there people that you would think are China hawks in the democratic spectrum? Uh, you know, they're, they're, the China hawks on the Republican spectrum is are very obvious. They, you know, uh, nothing that China could do was uh, right. But on the Democratic spectrum, um, is there an extreme view that there is no uh, ability to talk with China? Very few of those, but I think you will have uh, uh, people who, again, there'll be a broad objection if they are menacing Taiwan broad support for Hong Kong. I think the viewpoint I just gave you is fairly widely done. That is, nobody who's going to say, oh, no, no matter what the Chinese do, we don't want to deal with them. But I think the, uh, the objections I talked about are fairly broad. Another way to put this question is, what would the initial uh, things that China could do uh, to at least start the, the dialogue going with the new administration? Um, you know, it's... Uh, um, are there are there uh, issues from uh, the trade um, you know talks that were going on during the Trump administration that um, needs to be resolved uh, right now? They could step up their ability to fulfill the promises they made to buy more things. I think those are always exaggerated. Um, you know, particularly they could buy more American farm products that would ease the political pressure, would save the billions we had to do. Um, that, I think, is something that, you know, I know this question of face and said, oh, well, they already agreed to do that. Um, it's hard to ask people to reverse themselves, but you could, you could at least not make it worse. Uh, they could cool the rhetoric about Taiwan. They could stop threatening Taiwan, not have a, uh, uh, a tantrum because they changed the size of the word Republic of China on the cover of the passport, etc. That, those would be very, very helpful. Uh, they could stop militarizing the South China Sea to the extent they can. The other thing they could do in the economic area is they can genuinely respect intellectual property and have reciprocity. Uh, you know, I, frankly, there are important American economic interests that care less about Taiwan and Hong Kong than I do, uh, but they're also very concerned about the way China manipulates uh, other people's intellectual property. If they were much more protective of intellectual property and not so demanding that people who do business kind of give up to them and allow Americans to do business, if they allowed some reciprocity, that would diminish the hostility in one important sector of America. They seem to have done that with uh, in their um, you know trade agreement with the EU. Uh, at least on paper, it's, uh, it, that's exactly. I know, suppose that they could show real good faith in the EU negotiation because that's one of the reactions in America. You know, how do we know they're going to pay more, any more attention to the EU than they did with the WTO negotiations? Multilateralism and the US. Uh, you know, now that the WTO is 
you know, dysfunctional as it were, not just by American standards. Uh, you know, many, many large countries find it uh, difficult dealing with, with um, you know, with the WTO or taking the WTO route. Uh, and uh, many countries have actually found the bilateral route uh, a lot more, um, you know, co constructive and faster and all that. Uh, you know, is America still a multilateral, um, you know, uh, con a country with multilateralism as a conviction? You don't have the xenophobia of Trump, the America first. There is a much more of a recognition that, that we have mutual interests, uh, much more of a humanitarian concern for the rest of the world. Um, you won't have Joe Biden talking about shithole countries uh, and being so uncompassionate uh, to, to others, uh, even though, as some people have noted, uh, Trump a couple of weeks ago at the Capitol sort of moved us in that direction. But um, the uh, yes, I think uh, both ideologically and in terms of recognition of real interest, there's more support. For you just look at, at NATO and other relationships, uh, Biden has been a leading voice in American foreign policy for many years, chairman of the Foreign Relations Committee, vice president. So, yeah, I think there was a strong predisposition towards multilateralism. I think you'll see it in many cases and a willingness to expand it to China, given, however, that there were those constraints that I mentioned in the foreign policy and human rights area and also in, in the nature of their economy closing up. Domestically focused, not as a part of a generally sort of isolationist, xenophobic approach, but domestically prioritized, partly because getting a better balance domestically is the prerequisite for having the political support to go forward internationally with multilateralism. Does this period remind you of any period in the past in the U.S., you know, maybe after Nixon or something like that? Um, the you know uh, does it does it um, call on on sentiments that have helped the U.S. in the past that that will help you help the country go through this phase between frankly now in the 30s the 1930s when anger about the depression was a problem not just in America but in Europe and that's when you got fascism that's when you got the assault on democracy and I believe that in both cases while there were other factors. The motivating force behind the uh, disillusionment with democracy was economic dissatisfaction. The average citizen feeling that the economy wasn't working for, for him or her. And that's why I think that's, that's why I think the domestic priority has to come first. Diminishing that perception is a prerequisite for going forward. Um, I don't see much of a parallel. We have not in, in the post-World War II period what you saw was a steady move of the Republican Party to a more centrist position up until Ronald Reagan. You know, when Gerald Ford was president and then Jimmy Carter, there was very little difference between them, for example, on the issue of gay rights to even abortion. Um, and then came Ronald Reagan. And from 1980 on, there's been a steady rightward movement on the Republican part. Finally, that triggered a leftward movement on the Democratic part, not right away. And so the, uh, the extreme conservatism of the Republican Party today, there's no parallel for that in, in recent history. So the, the thing that we should be looking forward to is greater bipartisanship uh, and the personalities who can bring that about. Are you hopeful on that? Frankly, I don't want bipartisanship right now. That is, I don't want to split the difference with a right-wing band of... of uh, uh, Trump psychophants. I hope we can get to that. I do believe this. The Republican Party has a choice to make. If they continue to be dominated by the Trump people, then no, I, there won't be bipartisanship. Instead, frankly, I think we will win elections because of the negative about them. What, what I think will have to happen is I think the Republicans, if the, if, if the Republicans suffer politically, as I believe they will, and as obviously as I hope they will from the public policy standpoint, that may then give the, uh, the, the more reasonable Republicans the ability to take over their party. But as of now, it's still the Trump party. And uh, I hope they will undo that and go back to a, I'll take a Cheney party, Liz and her, and her father. But until that happens, no, there's no basis for bipartisanship.
at the same time, the criticism on the democratic front is the the rise of the elites, uh, the the rise of elitism and uh, and entitlement. Um, you know that that has to unravel as well uh, to some extent. I think. Yes, what we have to do is to share the wealth. That that uh, the distribution of wealth has to become as important as how much we create. The Democrats are still the party of the. Uh, worst treated people in America, African-Americans, folks, Hispanics, etc. But um, I do believe, yes, ending the, uh, the, the maldistribution of wealth based on education more than anything else, we, yes, that's the number one priority. That was amazing. Thank you very much. Uh, you know, it, it, was, it was, we covered a lot of ground. Um, you know, um, and, and uh, you gave me a perspective of the personalities that we need to look out for how they would play out uh, for everything from banking to trade uh, to the environment. Um, and um, we, we ticked off the boxes on uh, the domestic economy uh, tra- um, and, and foreign policy and, and so on. And Bunny, this conversation can go on. Uh, there are three or four more things that I would like to, um, you know, to, to tap your mind, your brains on. But uh, we've already, you know, uh, got captured a very good sense of uh, the people that we need to look out for uh, in the in in the administration as it comes about in the next week or so. You've helped us a lot on on doing that. Thank you very much, and uh, and I'll see you soon uh, uh, as soon as I can get to the states. Thank you. Thank you for listening to Radio Finance. For more content, visit the Asian Banker website and follow us on social media.